0: and welcome to this latest edition of Halftime with Chuck and Drew, featuring two of the hardest working hosts in American podcasting history. And since they've yet to show up for a single program, Drew and I will continue to fill in as best we can, pushing past the boundaries of good taste, intelligence, and reporting accuracy, and into the large abyss of psychosis, delusion, and absurdity. And as usual, we note that our podcast features topics from two subject areas, sports and pop culture. And with any luck, which we generally are devoid of, we won't make any of our Chicago listeners bad. Thus, the members of the Parcheesi crime family won't be putting out contracts on us, even though I've assured them several times that anything and just about everything they hear on our show is all
1: Drew's fault. Most of it is. Yes, but don't worry, buddy. Uh, yeah. I,
0: I've got your back until
1: things go south. <laughs> That's reassuring. You got my back until I need someone to have my back. Right. Winter oh, time, yeah. I'm with you. Right. <laughs> <As they>
0: say, <laughs> since it's been a while since we've done this, it's time now to examine some of the emails that we've received from our listeners. And here's the first one. Dear sirs, your subscription to Flannel Babes magazine is set to expire October 30th. Please remit the sum of $37.50 before that date to continue your subscription and to receive your free 2022 calendar and complimentary power screwdriver set featuring six different Russian alphabetic head adjustments, just perfect for that holiday regifting that you'll later want to do. Drew, I I thought I told you to cancel that subscription. Well, Explain they, yourself. Explain yourself to our audience and now to my wife.
1: Well, it used to be $30. $30. They've upped it to $30. i am going to cancel it.
0: <laughs> <You're> good. <laughs> Glad to know. Well, here's another <laughs> note. Uh, let's see. This says, Dear Chuck and Drew, I find your shows fascinating. Well, so far, so good. Yeah. It's amazing what the mentally ill can do with a little encouragement and computer <laughs> access. <laughs> The fact that you continue on without building the smallest shred of a real listening audience is an encouragement to all of us who hate people. Best wishes, Bernard Q of Love Handles, California.
1: Yeah, I I can kind of relate. I don't like people either. I I was (laughs) trying to find something to watch on TV the other night, but I couldn't find a show without any people in it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, apparently people don't like us much, so I guess we're (laughs) even. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and move on. Up next is a segment where we talk about what we've been watching, reading, or injecting. Well, skip the last part. Let's yeah. just stick to watching and reading. And as always, you get to go first.
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. I this isn't really watching or reading in the sense on television, but uh, a, a friend of mine—I don't know if he listens or not. Well, Brian Hutchinson, you and I both know him. Uh, ended up with VIP passes to the Louder Than Life festival in louisville which was basically a heavy metal fair and i was um you know he invited me to go with him and it was fun i was actually mentally braced because the last time i went to something like that and saw metallica and and those kinds of bands i was a lot younger and it was a pilled out coked out messed out kind of psychotic crowd and we get there, and it just dawned on me that it's the same people. Everybody is older. There isn't really a younger element. And it was nothing got destroyed. Everyone was polite. Everyone was responsible. It was a lot of fun seeing that again. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I don't think it was, it was what we got. But uh, it was nice. Uh, everybody's older. They still rock. It was still fun to, to go to. They uh, got a lot more to rock now, don't they? Yeah. But it was, it was a huge crowd and it went from being everything that I had always thought of metal in the nineties when I was in high school to a crowd that wanted to leave early so they could beat traffic.
0: In their minds, Drew, though, they're back in the days of when they were 18 to 20 years old or whatever, yeah. and they're rocking out and partying just as hard. As they did back then, but the next morning they're going to suffer a lot more for doing it.
1: Right. Uh, that might be what's going on in their minds. Uh, that is not the reality. You are not partying as hard.
0: <laughs> you can't, like,
1: you, you'd be passing out within a half an
0: hour. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, as you know, I've always been fascinated and I continue to be fascinated by the old mobsters of the 1920s and 30s, and thus I recently watched a documentary called Hidden Secrets, Gangsters of the 1920s and 1930s. And it, of course, talked about guys like Al Capone, John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, Bonnie and Clyde. I guess Bonnie's not a guy, but at the same time, you get the idea. And also like Machine Gun Kelly. I I always kind of liked that time frame in American history. It was kind of like the wild, wild west meets the 20th century. And this documentary was supposed to include FBI and police film archival footage, and rare photos, and I have to admit, I was a little bit disappointed because a lot of that material I had seen before on other shows and also in books, and there really wasn't a lot of new information that I got out of that particular documentary. In other words, most of it really wasn't all that hidden unless the producers were talking about hidden in plain sight. So it was fun to watch, but at the same time, while I was looking for something new, I found only small traces of that.
1: One of the things you might be running into, Chuck, this is very much in your wheelhouse. It's one of the things that I think interests you and fascinates you. You might be getting to a point to where there just isn't much out there that's left that's new to you.
0: That's probably true because I'm sure there's only so much archival footage and photos available that can still be seen. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. You know, the one thing I did learn, and this this did fascinate me to a degree, was that people back in the 20s and 30s really liked looking at dead bodies and having their pictures taken with them. And I'm serious about this. When a gangster was killed, they'd put the guy who'd been all shot up on display on a table, and people would line up for blocks to walk by and see the shot up body. One law enforcement agent actually had his picture taken showing him shaking hands with John Dillinger's corpse. Can
1: you believe that? I can't. It's it's weird to hear, but I do kind of believe it because throughout human history, it's kind of funny now. Everybody talks about the slasher movies and how violent entertainment and video games and television are. But to me, that is way less morbid than actually – Going to see a dead person. Uh, executions used to be public. Hangings used to be public, and even more, you, you know, extreme forms of communication such as like guillotines and burning at the stake. People would actually go on vacation to go witness this. That yeah, they were seems like a more, fairs.
0: Yeah, These people in the Old West they knew there was going to be a public hanging. They'd gather for miles around to come there, and it would be a carnival-like atmosphere. Leading up to the hanging of some poor person. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And to me, that's a little more morbid than, you Mm. know, watching a slasher movie.
0: Well, you know, after John Dillinger was shot in front of the Biograph Theater in Chicago, uh, they did talk about this. People were using their handkerchiefs or whatever they could find to blot up his blood so they'd have a souvenir. And they'd also show this type of imagery of, what happened with john dillinger and some of these other gangsters and newsreels and theaters and people back then really seemed to i guess maybe they were related to vampires or zombies or whatever because they had this really macabre fascination with dead bodies i guess i don't know (laughs) it's kind of weird it just kind of it weirded me out to think about it quite frankly well drew now it's time for your favorite part of the show that has people in small coffee houses in northern Lithuanian villages talking for nearly seconds at a time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the segment of this program that revels in the magnificent and utterly amazing manliness of our very own Drew Barnett. Yes, it's Who Knew About Drew. (laughs) Today on Who Knew About Drew, we discover that escalators will submit to Drew's will. Moving in whichever direction Drew wants them to, some escalators even have been known to move in two different directions at the same time, just in case Drew decides to change his mind. Drew, your power over inanimate, mechanically moving objects is truly thrilling to behold, and many of us are hoping that one day you'll move on too.
1: Yeah. Uh, the escalators I've got down. It's it's the moving sidewalks at the airport. I can't get the people to get out of the way.
0: You know what I thought it would be fun, and I've thought about this when I've gone down the these moving sidewalks that you talked about. Yeah. You know, back when I was maybe about twenty-five. Running the 40-yard dash on one of those moving sidewalks to see what kind of time I would get. Because, I mean, you feel like you're lighter than air when you're going down just walking. And I can't even
1: imagine at a
0: full sprint how great I'd feel. I'd I'd feel like I was defying gravity.
1: I hate the airport, but I almost want to go there just to do that now.
0: It's fun. It is fun. I mean, I could ride those things all day long, but then again, I'm pretty easily entertained. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. We can move on to the first topic of the show. Drew, as we both know, you can often get a clearer picture of the reasons behind the scores of professional sporting events by reviewing the various statistics from those various games and matches or what have you. However, one particular sport has really gone out of its way to analyze every single possible statistic from every player, team, and game, even to the point of continually inventing new types of analytics. Thanks to author and statistician Bill James, who began writing books to analyze baseball through its stats back in 1977, he is also the so-called godfather of sabermetrics involving baseball, Well, again, thanks to James and his digital disciples, millions of baseball fans are now climbing up every single orifice of the game that they can get into. And I keep wondering to myself, is this maybe complicating things beyond the way they need to be complicated? Do people really get enjoyment out of this? Is it maybe taking away enjoyment from other people? What is it doing? I think sometimes it goes back to the days of what they called rotisserie baseball, which is now fantasy baseball. And that started, I guess, around 1980 or whenever it was. But to me, I look at it, it's like it makes my head spin.
1: Right. I'll talk about another sport that I also know about in in particular, and that's college basketball. And there are what are known as enhanced statistics. And it's basically what those are supposed to do is measure how good a team is or what a team's win probability is at any moment. One of the classic ones is offensive and defensive efficiency, which is simply points per possession. So if you have three possessions and you scored five points, your offensive efficiency is five divided by three, and it works the same for the defense. The enhanced version of that would be to adjust it based on how good or how bad the teams you've played against are to get a better measurement of how good a team is offensively and defensively. I do think that you, there is a point when expanded uh, statistics or enhanced statistics can be useful. And then there's what baseball does. It expands and enhances it to the point to where it is so far out there that you don't even remember that you're talking about baseball anymore. Or I don't. You
0: almost need a NASA scientist to help yeah. you weed through all this or someone with a degree in advanced accounting and mathematics. It's to the point that... Yeah, you know, I don't know how I felt about math when I was in school. Some of it I liked, a lot of it I didn't like. Well, I didn't like school in general, I'll be honest with you, for the most part. But at the same time, I like the fact that baseball can be a lot simpler than what these folks portray it as. For instance, when you look at some of the stats, the basic ones are like at bats, runs, hits, doubles, triples, yeah. homers, RBI, stolen bases, walks, strikeouts, and batting average. And then you can maybe go into on-base percentage, slugging percentage. And then they add in OPS, which is on base plus slugging percentage. Then OPS plus, which factors in things involving the league average, ballpark factors, and it's based on an average of being
1: 100. You just listed about 15 statistical categories.
0: Right, which are the basic (laughs) core of baseball statistics, the historical core of baseball statistics. Let's get into some of these other new ones. And I'm just going to go through the hitting right now. And you've got batting average on balls in play, isolated power, which focuses on extra base hits, total bases versus hits. Then you figure the average. Late inning pressure situations at bats after the seventh inning, down by three or fewer, tied or ahead by one. Pitches per plate appearance, plate appearances per strikeout, runs created, which you would think would be, say, like RBIs plus runs minus home runs because you don't want to count home runs twice. But it's actually total bases times hits plus walks divided by at-bats plus walks, which is a lot more complicated than I think it needs to be. Then you've got weighted runs above average, weighted on-base percentage, weighted runs created, plus wins probability added. My least favorite one, wins above replacement, also known as war, which factors in a player's value in terms of a specific number of wins, adds in positional adjustment designed to compare players who play different positions, how many wins a player is worth in all facets of the game as compared to a replacement level at his same position. You've got exit velocity off the bat. You've got hard hit percentage, line drive percentage, ground ball percentage, fly ball percentage, pole percentage in fielding. Then you've got things that evaluate range and all sorts of stuff. Pitching is not just wins, losses, and ERA. You have ERA+, plus, which factors in a player's ballpark. You've got FIP or FIP. Fielding independent pitching, which measures basically a pitcher's effectiveness at preventing home runs, walks, hit by pitches, and causing strikeouts. Runs allowed per nine innings, which is unearned runs included. Runs per nine innings pitched of support of defense, which measures defensive support for that pitcher. The park factor, hard hit ball percentage, line drive percentage, ground ball percentage, fly ball percentage, average exit velocity off of that particular pitcher. So, I mean... You could go on for days and days and days, and you could make someone like Einstein want to throw himself off the building after he goes through all this stuff.
1: Yeah, I collected baseball cards when when I was little, I think everybody kind of did, and they would have stats on the back of the card. Uh, You would need a card that was about three feet long in order to get all that crap on there. Yeah, is it too much, though, in your mind? In my opinion, yes. And in my opinion, it gets so, you know, numeric and so quantitative that you actually drown in that and lose touch of the actual game. I'm sure some of that is probably useful, and maybe some of it is can help understand the game or measure it in certain ways. But you almost wonder, like somebody that's looking at all that and, and evaluating all that and compiling all that have you ever just sat down and watched a baseball game
0: and just for enjoyment and just let the yeah. game come to you instead of trying to statistically analyze every single thing that you're seeing right on your television screen or if you're at the park maybe trying to analyze what you're seeing from your seat yeah um, I think and it's too much for me I mean I know that there are some people who are numbers geeks who just love to go into this and just crunch these things over and over again, it must be like going through and trying to do a tax return for Donald Trump.
1: Yes, Um, rather complicated, rather extensive. But the things that you miss out on are almost sort of the qualitative stuff. Like, would you know what a good ball player looks like if you saw one? How would you measure a fantastic play in the outfield, a diving catch, or You know, the shortstop makes a a fantastic play for a double play. Like, some of this stuff and some of the enjoyment of the game and some of the ways that you critique players just don't show up in the stats. Managers, how they do shifts and how they manage the field and how they work the lineup. I think that you need to do more than just look at, you know, batting velocity and whatever some of the other stuff is – runs batted in at night on the road when within three runs or less. I'm sure that's a category.
0: Well, yeah, we have statistics for guys, how many hits they get depending on when the last time they clipped their toenails on a Wednesday after a night game, Uh, after a holiday, you know, or the last time they talked to their barber, you know, things like (laughs) that. I mean, it just gets to the point where it's, it's just overkill. Now for some people, I guess it is enjoyment, but, I just wonder how much they really enjoyed the game of baseball. Would they enjoy the game of baseball if these statistics weren't there? I mean, it's gotten to the point where you watch, say, a game on television, and it's more so when you watch a game uh, on a network that they'll show, let's say, an outfielder going from part of the outfield to another part and making a diving catch, and they'll say, well, he covered 50 yards and he did it in this much time and he was running 23 miles an hour You know what? I really don't care. I just saw a guy make a great catch, and he had to go a long way to do it. That's all I know. Uh, It's like exit velocity. Somebody hits a home run. I say, man, that was 117 miles an hour off the bat. Well, you know what? All I know is it it cleared the fence. And if it was at 95 (laughs) miles an hour or 120 (laughs) miles an hour, it's
1: a home run. There's a scene in the movie Major League. I, I I don't remember if it was the first one or the second one where it's the very beginning and it's the guys in the outfield. I think it was Randy Quaid's character, and they're incessantly arguing whether the ball was hit too high or too hard. And <laughs> finally it was like, well, who gives a crap? It's out of here.
0: <laughs> These statistics have had an impact on the game. One in particular comes to mind. This is one of my least favorite ones. They talk about launch angle. In other words, Basically, they're talking about the uppercut of the swing and what it measures out. at. You have a 20% launch angle. Well, now all these hitters are being taught to improve their launch angles to get the ball in the air, and what's happening is many of them cannot hit fastballs above their belt because they're swinging under everything, and they're striking out a lot more because they're all home run happy because of the launch angle thing. Yeah. So it's so hard, there's, in some ways yeah. hurt the game. But, yeah. I'll ask you this, Drew: For say, front office executives who are trying to evaluate players, let's say they're trying to sign a free agent for their club, how important are these metrics in your mind, and do they really help significantly? Now, I guess you could get different arguments either way about that.
1: I think some of them are probably helpful, but I think some of them are also so, like so extended and so enhanced that it it is so many. Degrees of separation away from the actual game that it actually isn't helpful at all. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I look at a guy who was a great player in the Hall of Fame, played recently in the major leagues, who probably, because of all these metrics, when he was being scouted, they would say, this guy has no chance to be a big leaguer. And I'm talking about Greg Maddox, Mm -hmm. a guy that had pinpoint control, but he was not a pitcher who you'd look at and say, oh my gosh, that guy's got a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. He probably didn't throw generally much more than, I think, his best fastball, even when he was young, maybe hit 93, possibly 94. But generally, he was around 90 or so, 89, 91, maybe 92. He changed speeds. He put a little bit more on this pitch, a little less on that one. This was a breaking ball. Maybe it was a little harder one time than it wasn't next. He would change speeds so well and just work hitters over, from a cerebral standpoint, that he won a lot of games. But that's not what they look for anymore. They look for people with tools. What's the spin rate on his curveball? What's the spin rate on his fastball? How hard does he throw? There are probably some players out there that don't get a look for pro baseball that actually could possibly compete in the minor leagues pretty well. (laughs) and maybe have a shot to go to the major league. I wonder if that's why we don't see any knuckleball pitchers anymore because those guys didn't throw any harder
1: than like 50 miles an hour. Right, yeah. And some of those knuckleball pitchers were, you know, very effective.
0: Hoyt Wilhelm, Phil Necro, Wilbur Mm -hmm. Wood, guys like that, Eddie Fisher. Great pitchers. Tim Wakefield from recent years. These are guys who could get major league hitters out because when they tossed up that knuckleball – no one, including the pitchers themselves, knew where that ball was going. <laughs> right. As a result, it was just kind of drifting on whatever air current it caught at the time. Pitchers like that, you don't see anybody being taught the knuckleball anymore because it doesn't have a great spin rate because it has no spin.
1: <laughs> yeah. It just darts around.
0: So I don't know. I don't really know where this ends either because – Every time I think, well, they've probably analyzed about every possible statistic they can and every part of the game that they can with these various types of analytics. Somehow they come up with a new one.
1: Yeah, bat weight over <laughs> the weight of the bat over the velocity of the pitch.
0: As opposed to a guy like Babe Ruth who'd pick up a bat. He didn't care how much it weighed. It felt good in his hands. He'd go up there and clobber one 500 feet.
1: Right. And when you look at some of these iconic managers, and I know games evolve and baseball certainly is no different and maybe even more, it evolves more than other sports. But when you look at Billy Martin and Earl Weaver, both of who were before my time, I just don't see either one of them, both of whom had an expert knowledge and and great sense of the game, looking at any of those analytics at all and getting anything out of them.
0: They managed on instinct. And as yeah. you mentioned, they had an expert knowledge of the game. They were baseball geniuses in essence. Yeah. They could see things happening before they happened. They knew how to dictate play of the game against the opponent. Those types of managers are less and less. I think that Terry Francona of the Cleveland Indians is probably one of those guys because he'll let his pitchers Go as deep in the game as they possibly can. He's not looking as much at pitch count as he is effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So when they hit the 100 pitch mark, and if they're still cruising along, he may say, "Go out for that next inning, see how you do." And if they get to 110 pitches or whatever, and they're still cruising along and still looking good, he may say, "Go out for the ninth inning, pitch that one as well." And I like that kind of managing. This idea that you have to take a pitcher out after 100 pitches. Uh, you know, no, sometimes you take that pitcher out, you bring in a reliever and he blows the game. So, I mean, the old style, there's something to be said for instinctive managing. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, maybe it turns around to a degree at some point. I'm not sure. But for me, I try to simplify the game of baseball just to enjoy what I'm watching and not worry so much about all these numbers for people who enjoy that kind of stuff. If they want to sit there with their calculators and crunch numbers while they're watching the game, that's fine. If they get more out of it that way, I guess different strokes for different folk. And that probably takes care of enough on that segment. Well, Drew, our next segment, we're going to be talking about a little pop culture. Strike three, you're out. Time now for part two of our show. And today, on the pop culture segment of halftime with Chuck and Drew, we examine the changing way Americans are accessing their TV programs. It used to be viewers in various markets had to access their programs only through what they got through the airwaves from their local market TV stations, but no more. There are an increasing number of ways for them to enjoy their shows and different shows that are not on the networks.
1: Right. So when television first came up, I, I guess it kind of it was invented in the late thirties. There were television stations and people that owned them throughout the 40s, but it was ninety percent the radio and as the fifties rolled around, it, it sort of boomed there, and there were three or four channels. And obviously, back then, there was no real DVR, no VHS, and you had four channels. So, very much of the country, if they were watching television, they were all seeing the same thing at the same time. So, if you missed the Ed Sullivan Show, or if you missed I Love Lucy, or if you missed a lot of these early programs, uh, you missed them. They they were they were kind of gone forever. Now, there's about 4,000 channels, not just uh, not just four. There's other vehicles such as streaming services, Amazon Prime, Netflix, TV, hundreds of them. And people, I don't know if anybody watches things live anymore or together anymore. Even when I was in college, TV was sort of a shared experience. Like, I, I still remember when the Frank Grimes episode of The Simpsons aired, I was in a friend's room, we were watching it, and you could hear everybody up and down the hall you you know, laughing. Uh, I don't know if you get experiences like that anymore with so many different options. And with DVRs, I don't watch things live. I record them so I can zip through the commercials.
0: Well, you're exactly right about that stuff. I remember when I was in college, on a Saturday night, we stuck around our house or wherever our dorm, and a bunch of us would watch Saturday Night Live together. And that was being done all over town, all through the dorms where I went to school. And then after you saw Saturday Night Live, then you would go out to have your good time. But that was sort of the kickoff to your Saturday night was sharing this experience of watching SNL. Well, now, I guess what you could do is if you wanted to go out earlier, you can because you can record SNL. You can maybe pick it up someplace else. You can go to NBC's website and watch it off of that. And you can do that through your smart TV. You're pretty well not landlocked to your TV anymore because you're afraid to miss your favorite program.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's there's way, way more TV than what there's ever been before. Uh, I remember when ESPN launched, it was one channel, it was on cable, and they were so desperate for programming, they would have things like billiards on there. (laughs) Essentially, if you could produce a sporting event with little cost to them, they would put it on no matter who you were. Now, my sports package around DirecTV, which is what you have, starts around 600 and goes into the 790s. (laughs) And uh, it's on all the time news. I remember when CNN launched, uh, they would have the same news over and over and over again. Now there's about 50 different news channels that you can subscribe to, and it's they somehow are always having breaking news.
0: Well, people, too, would rather binge watch their favorite shows. So that way they don't have to wait a week to find out if little Timmy got off the railroad tracks before the right. train showed up. So sometimes they'll hold off and wait until the season is over then go back on whatever streaming service they want to watch that show on and blow right through them within a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, I do that. I mean, I load up my DVR with, uh, if it's a series or like a a docu-series or a mini-series or just a regular television series, I'll wait till I get about eight or nine of them so I can watch them all at once and not have the cliffhanger for a week. And shows like that, and I know I'm kind of turning back the clock here, but if you remember Lonesome Dove or if you remember Roots, these were shared experiences that, that everybody – because so many people around the country watched them and watched them as they aired, and there was that feeling of suspense like, well, what's going to happen next week or what's going to happen in the next episode that now that that's kind of gone. I, I think Game of Thrones – sort of got there because it was so popular among college students and young people that as soon as it was available, they wanted to watch it. And this was a ways before that. Some of these reality game shows like Survivor and The Bachelor, I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, like to watch those live. But for the most part, that just doesn't happen anymore.
0: I remember we spent a whole summer wondering who shot Jr. (laughs) yeah <laughs> that was the topic of t v shows. it was in the newspaper. it was in magazines. There was speculation. everybody was talking about it. Everyone wanted to know who shot j r if you're unfamiliar with that particular character, it was Larry Hagman who played j r. Ewing on the very popular t v series Dallas
1: yeah,
0: and of course j r was hated about by everybody on the entire show, (laughs) every character on the show, so you had no shortage of possible suspects for who might have shot him. By the way, I did guess it right. I thought it was that one gal who shot him, so I did get that right, but it wasn't something that I, I knew or anything like that, but it was fun to speculate with my friends or other people that I would run across at work And we say, hey, did you see that yet? Who do you think it was? You know, why do you think they did it? But it created a buzz for that particular program over the course of several months until you had the fall premiere show. And then you found out who it was who pulled the trigger.
1: Yeah. And I bet that that was a huge television event when they they finally. that,
0: That communal experience of watching TV together, even if you're not together, that's pretty well in the past now.
1: Yeah. There's one exception, maybe, and those are big sporting events. But other than that, I think you're right.
0: I think the networks are starting to catch on to this, Drew, because I know that NBC, for instance, has pulled the office from Netflix and is starting its own streaming service called NBC Universal. And Mm -hmm. I'm starting to believe this is where the networks might be headed in terms of they may have their regular networks, with okay you can watch it on the night it airs during the fall and during the spring but then again you can also go back to our streaming services and watch it there and i believe they'll start to withhold some of their more popular programs so that they can put them on their own streaming services and make more money
1: yeah they probably will i think in some ways we're getting suckered though you know <laughs> yeah. because oh the- yeah like uh when 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 i every, every month when my uh, satellite bill comes.
0: Right. We used to watch TV for free. Yeah. Then then you got cable and maybe you paid 20 bucks or something for it. Yeah. And then that was kind of the start of it. And now you're looking at direct TV, which is, you know, depending on what you're going to get, a hundred to $200 a month. Uh And then you start adding in, well, Netflix is extra. Amazon prime is extra. Hulu is extra. And all of a sudden you're spending like $300 or whatever to watch TV every month. That's nuts.
1: Yeah, it is. And again, I in some ways it it's great today, if you're a college sports fan like you and I are, to know that if you want to watch the Western Athletic Conference or the Big West, your sports package has it. But you pay for it. You, mm-hmm. you pay well, it used to be you got whatever was on the one or two local stations that you got and that was it. Like you you never even knew what was going on in any part of the country. Now there's division three football from Washington State on, if you want to watch it.
0: Sports, I thought, and I still think, was ahead of the game when you talk about specialized programming and streaming services. When you talked about ESPN, that kind of kicked everything off. Then you had to start to pay extra on your cable service, maybe to get it. And now you have like the Major League Baseball channel, the NFL, NBA, and NHL have their own channels. You mentioned all the regional sports networks, and you have the various leagues that have their own networks. And if you want those, say, out of market, you're going to have to pay extra for them.
1: Yeah. But, yeah, I agree. We're getting suckered.
0: Yeah, we are getting suckered. But the one thing that live TV still has are certain events we talked about, like the Super Bowl. You're going to want to watch that live. Right, yeah. And you're going to want to have people over, and that's an event where you have a party. But maybe some World Series games, maybe Game 7 of the NBA championship or – perhaps uh, the championship game of the NCAA basketball tournament?
1: Yeah, I think the NCAA basketball tournament, whether you're watching it or following on Twitter, is a pretty big shared experience. If for no other reason than everybody's got – they're in a jackpot. It's everywhere you go. The sport itself is sort of – I mean, I love it all season long, but I think to the general American, it's sort of ho-hum until that first weekend of the round of 64.
0: But what do you do about certain programs that you really do have to watch live? For instance, news and certain talk shows that are time sensitive really need to be watched live at times. What do you do about those? Because streaming them in some cases or taping them or what I call recording, that's my old term, taping them, doesn't necessarily work all the time.
1: No, because they don't have a very long shelf life. It's it's like a newspaper. It you, you know a week later it's useless.
0: But you can't line your bird cage. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't yeah. put a newspaper. <laughs>
1: right.
0: Or you can train the dog with it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think advertisers are are catching on to all this stuff too. They're spending more on streaming services. I think last year I read it was about eight billion dollars that they're now spending is part of their marketing. That's up $6.4 billion from 2019. So advertisers are starting to move over to these streaming services to get on board.
1: And you're, you're going to start to see where, like I think you had mentioned this before, to where you can't zip through the commercials on a streaming service anymore. There's already some that are like that. I was trying to watch I think a concert or something on YouTube the other night and it stopped for ads and you couldn't skip them.
0: I believe that on demand, and I think the studies would show this, is starting to put a real hurt on cable TV and satellite services because of the pricing and also because of the convenience.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, you hear it. A lot of people are cutting the cord or I guess tossing out the dish. (laughs) You're in my case, But um, I I think it is because if you have Netflix and you have YouTube TV and you have some of those streaming services, think about the percentage of what you watch, how little of it you watch live. So why have satellite or cable TV at all?
0: And I've noticed that the satellite and cable TV services are more willing to negotiate with you when it's time for your renewals. And you call them and say, you know what, my bill is this much and that's way too much you can wind up taking your bill down by several dollars just by talking through that because they don't want to lose you. They know that they're in trouble because these on-demand services are marching like the villagers with the pitchforks and the torches to their doors. Yeah, I've had
1: very good luck with that, uh, calling and just saying, I need a better deal or I'm going to a competitor.
0: Oh, yeah, and they'll start to give you free stuff like movie checks and things like that because they're desperate to keep you. It's kind of like the – Consumer is now king, but at the same time, we're still spending a You're lot of money. Spending, yeah. A lot of money to watch television. And when does it become too much? When does that amount become too much and those amounts start to come down? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Netflix is pretty cheap all by itself. It's
1: real cheap. You and Amazon
0: Prime aren't that that expensive. But I'm wondering, say, when the networks start to, like NBC does now, have their own streaming services if that competition will start to drive those prices down.
1: I hope it does. Uh, the cell phone certainly drove the long distance bills down almost to where, you know, they didn't exist anymore.
0: You know, right. you didn't want to call for too long because, you know, it was expensive and your parents would say at the other end, when you'd call them collect from college, you know, I'm spending a fortune just to talk to you. Well, it's nice to know I'm worth it. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of deal. Uh, I can remember I had a friend who lived in London, England. And I actually. Uh, was hired by this person to do some freelance work back in the early 80s. And I had to call him one day. So I called him from my house phone. And this is back around 1981, I believe, 82. I talked to him for 20 minutes and it was 20 bucks. And back then that was exorbitant. I about passed out when I got the phone bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now I could well, probably talk to him for free, either through Zoom or Google
1: Oh, on the computer oh, or whatever. He- we could have him on the podcast.
0: Yeah, we could. We might do that. Yeah. He's a good guy. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I may contact him if I can find him. But anyway, I, I think it will be interesting to see how things shape up regarding on-demand and how we'll be able to use TV in the future because the way we're using it now is still not anywhere close to where it will be perhaps even in three to five years. I agree. <laughs> well, Drew, that wraps it up for another show. We want to remind people that if they would like to email us, Even if they wouldn't like to email us, they can still email us at halftime240 at gmail.com, halftime240 at gmail.com. Drew and I are proud to announce that we are working finally on our website, and we'll give you information about that as it becomes available. You're doing most of the work on that. You're spearheading that effort.
1: Oh, and it shows. Uh, If you were to look at it now, it would be like, yeah, Drew did most of that work. It's still in rough shape.
0: So (laughs) please don't. Drew right now is putting away his box of 64 Crayola crayons that he used right. in the process of building the website, but it's yeah. still a long way from what it needs to be, but when it is, we'll tell you how to access it and you can go out there and check out previous programs and get some more information about Drew and I if you really want some. If you don't, it's still going to be there.
1: <laughs> it's still going to be there. <laughs>
0: well, that wraps it up. Drew, as always, thanks so much for your contributions to this show. Uh, and
1: thank you, Chuck. You contribute a lot. <laughs> right. And that's halftime with Chuck and Drew.